Welcome to Season 4 of Adventures in the Spirit with Jared Lasky. This podcast is not just information, but impartation and activation. We believe that every conversation will encourage, equip, and empower you to live the daily supernatural life. Subscribe to this podcast and then share every episode with your friends and family and be activated. And welcome to another adventure in the Holy Spirit. I want to encourage you guys, if you think that we're in the last days or you're wanting more teaching, more rich teaching on how to study about the book of Revelation, I've got a free PDF available for you called Three Secrets to Dialogue, or actually Three Secrets to Unlocking the Book of Revelation. So that's Three Secrets to Unlocking the Book of Revelation available for you as a free PDF download. It's good for you to do as a personal study, as a small group, as a church group. It, it will challenge you, it will encourage you, and it will show you how that you live victorious in these these days in Jesus' name. So that PDF is available for you. Guys, today is going to be a very interesting topic. I've got my new friend, James Mosley, who holds a Bachelor of Arts degree. He's got a Master's degree in theology from Liberty University. He's currently, well, this is awesome. He's taken out some of his time you know he's very busy as he's a phd student but we're honored to have him on this podcast so uh, i just want him to know that we appreciate him taking his time out and being on adventures in the holy spirit and he's the author of 25 self-published books uh ranging from biblical theology religion culinary lore humor satire he's written screenplays so he and i probably have a, a lot to talk about whether it's about publishing books or even movies and screenplays and things like that. As some of you know, I went to film school a year, year and a half ago uh, just to upgrade the ministry. So please help me welcome James Mosley to Adventures in the Spirit. Welcome, James. Thank you, Jared. Thank you so much for having me on. It's a pleasure to be here. You know, I think about uh, Adventures in the Spirit, and we're talking about the apostles, and I, I wrote you in an email. You can hardly think of better poster boys for Adventures in the Spirit than the apostles. Well, yeah, I mean, that's the truth. You know, um, I, I've done seminary and different studies, historical studies. I've got a bunch of textbooks and study skill books and all kinds of things up on here. But a lot of people don't know what the apostles went through after the book of Acts or they, they read the Apostle Paul. They read the epistles. But uh, really, that's it. They don't have, you know, maybe it's just kind of a mystery to them as to the steps that the apostles took later. So you've written this. And, and published a book called The Biographies of Jesus Apostles. And I think, uh, if I saw on Amazon correctly, there's only like 20 copies available right now, but sure that there's more coming. But I'd love to hear some of you know your background of how you got into studying this and how you studied it and, and even why you released the book for the body of Christ. Well, you know, one thing I want to say about that also is if you go online, there's a Kindle version. And I really like that a lot because you can read it online and you can search for things. So the way the book is structured, there are probably things that people might just read through the book for the stories. But they'll probably, I hope, also use it as a uh, as a research resource. They can look things up. But how I came to this is I didn't grow up a Christian. I became a Christian at 32. And I wasn't just a non-Christian before then. I was an anti-Christian. I, I believe there was a God at 12 years old. I kind of figured out there must be something beyond the physical world. And I began questing for God. But what I did is by getting various jobs and doing various things, I traveled all over the world and I explored pretty much every religion you can think of. I very nearly became a Muslim. I got to know the Quran better than most Muslims do. Um, and But the problem was each time I encountered another religion, it was like having a telephone and I, I wanted to pick it up and talk to God because I knew he must be there somewhere. 
But not only was there no God on the other end of the line, there wasn't even a dial tone. Hmm. And so I remember when I went to India, I lived there for two years opening a company called uh, Brinks Aria. It was the Brinks Armored Car Company over there. And when I, my first day, I met the owner of the company who was to become our partner. And he asked me out of the blue, why are you here? And I said, well, um, I, I knew what he's asking. I never told anybody this, but I just blurted out, I'm looking for God. And he said, well, I, I thought that might be the case. So I've taken the liberty, and he reached over and pulled up a big brown box full of books, of collecting all these books on all the religious traditions of India. So you might enjoy reading these, but I want to caution you. Do not become a metaphysical tourist who loses your way. So I lived in India for two years, explored all kinds of various religious traditions, still didn't find God. Came back to the United States. My sister uh, suggested that I go to uh, Jack Hayford's Church on the Way one Sunday. Went there, heard the altar call, and thought, I don't even like this whole environment. I don't know about all this. But, hey, if I can cross the Himalayas and meet the Dalai Lama, and if I can trek through steaming jungles in Java to meditate at a Sufi shrine, I can walk down this aisle and find out if I can meet God. So I walked down the aisle, and I played, played the most insolent prayer. If I would have been God, I, I would have reduced me to a grease spot. My, my prayer would just say, well, I don't know about this, God, but if you're in this, I'm open. I didn't even repent. I didn't, you know, I didn't do any of the things you really are supposed to do to receive Jesus. But he must have understood my heart because a little light went on in my heart. And I just thought, well, it's the atmosphere. But it didn't go off. And I realized after a little, little time that my soul had become Christian. My mind hadn't. Wow. And that's when I began to try to say, well, I got to resolve one of two things. Either the Bible is fallible or I am. Well, so I began to attack the Bible and try to tear it apart. And that was the beginning of my journey in Bible scholarship when I kept finding to my shame and humiliation that my overeducated mind was wrong, 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 and the Bible was always right. And so I went on when I, when I joined a church, I had a pastor invite me to teach for teach a Bible class for just three Sundays. You know how that goes when you volunteer in church? Okay. I went on 10 years. <laughs> and so... In 10 years, I taught the Bible through verse by verse many times. And as I did it, I developed original course material and I would present that. And that became the basis for all my books. And in my class, I had a professional theologian. I had a rocket scientist from JPL. I had lots of professors. So iron was really sharpening iron among all of us who were examining the Bible together. And so that's how I came to write all these books. And that's how I came to... Um, write this book on the apostles because you were you were asking me in the email how do i how do i study the bible yeah. what i used to do is i would take i still do this i would take a microsoft excel a word document and i would create a table so when i'm looking at the four gospels i'll take every verse in the gospel and put it in a, a box in that table and i will uh, juxtapose the cognate verses so when i'm looking at things like jesus cleansing the temple I have all the verses referring to that and the Gospels that mention that all lined up together. So now I can examine similarities in those verses or variants in those verses. And when I would do that, I could do word studies and things like that. So take the temple cleansing. You hear a lot of people say, well, these are three accounts of a single event, but they're not. John clearly places the first cleansing in the Passover of AD 30. Matthew and Luke clearly placed the second one on Palm Sunday, and Mark explicitly says that on the day following Palm Sunday, which has to be Monday, Jesus did it again. 
So you only notice those kinds of things when you make those sorts of comparisons. Right. There are two cleansings from what I, from what I remember. Yeah. Well, I think there are three. There's three. one, there's one in the Passover of 8030 that John notes in John chapter two. And we can, we can tell it's right after that's after the wedding of Cana and at the time of, of Jesus first Passover. But then we have Palm Sunday, which is, which is in, in, in AD 33. And that's the kind of thing, you know, I, when I began teaching gospels together, just as one example, I started out and I stopped and I said to my class, stop guys, there are too many things I have to study before, I, before we can actually get through this coherently. Yeah. But I think with the apostles, it's, it's, it's really fascinating that kind of study People, um, or at least I, I'll just say I, when I became a Christian, began reading the Bible, I just thought of them as, you know, little flannel gram figures, you know, they're just kind of in the background, don't really know that much about them. But it turns out again and again, when you, when you really dredge through the Bible, looking for certain things, you find so much yeah. that sometimes you just, you just bleep over. For example, you hear again and again that the apostles um, were poor and they were illiterate. Well, that's only because the Pharisees insulted them by calling them uneducated, but they wrote the best-selling books of all time. I don't know. I'll take that. <laughs> um, yeah, they also they were driving fishing business. <clears throat> they had their own business. James and John had their own business. I mean, I mean, yeah, James and John had their own business and they were rich enough to have multiple boats and servants and Peter and Andrew became their partners. So they, you know, they had, they had a whole, they had a whole business, but, together. Matthew was obviously rich. He was a tax collector and he was obviously literate and mathematically competent. And he was probably also one of the things you notice when you read the early church fathers and also the clues that are in scripture itself, that Matthew Levy and James the Less and uh, Simon the Zealot were probably all brothers. And think of that. Think of a family who's got a tax collector, a zealot, and maybe just a guy in the middle, all in one family, and Jesus incorporates those people of violently opposed political leanings into unity in his ministry. Do you believe we are living in the end times? Are we seeing the signs of the times Jesus talked about with wars, rumors of wars, famines, pestilences, and earthquakes? With recent events of social unrest on the streets worldwide, a pandemic, and the shaking taking place in the political realm, we want to answer your questions and calm your fears by giving you hope through our e-course, The Last Days, A Reformation in Eschatology. You can go through the e-course on your time, diving deep into learning how to study apocalyptic and prophetic passages of Scripture. You'll do a study on the mark of the beast and learn about the signs of the times Jesus spoke about in Matthew chapter 24, Mark 13, and Luke 21, and hear what the major views of the end times are and learn what the rapture really is. We will lay a grounded and biblical answer to a number of your questions about the end times, and you'll learn if Bible codes are real, and you'll hear if the Shemitah applies to us today, and make up your own mind if the United States of America is prophesied in the Bible. I want to give you a warning. This e-course, The Last Days of Reformation and Eschatology, may shatter your worldview and what you have been traditionally taught about the end times. Go to www.charismacourses.com to purchase The Last Days, a Reformation and Eschatology with Jared Lasky e-course today. Amen. Well, you have, you're called the Bible history guy, obviously for a reason, with the, the way that you study, the chronological studies, and, and the resources that you put together. So when did that become a thing? And, um, you know, like, when that when did that become your motto as the Bible history guy? Because I was like, I, you know, I 
I love it. I mean, I just think that that's amazing. So how did that become a thing? Did you come up with it or was it just like word of mouth and it spread? Well, I finally did come up with it because I used to ask my class. Remember, I, I didn't grow up as a Christian. So a lot of Christian lingo, a lot of denominational awareness or ecclesiology was, was always foreign to me. I, I didn't know what I was talking about. Uh, and so I would have people come up to me and say, well, what do you think about this doctrine or that doctrine? I would say, I don't know, never looked at it. So let's find out. And that was how the classes went. And I kept asking my class, what do you think I do, by the way? And some people would say, well, it's biblical theology. Well, it's apologetics. But finally, what everybody kind of said is, well, it's Bible history. That's what you're really doing. You're telling the story. You're putting the narrative in context. And the reason why I think that's so important, I'll give you a couple of reasons. One if you go through the Bible, all of it, if you go through the Bible and you look for chronological markers, you will find that the Bible is incredibly rich in chronological markers, whether you're talking about the genealogies and in Genesis or other things. And you have to ask, why would God do that? Why would he put all these time markers in there? And I think there are many reasons. One reason is because he wants to show us that the narratives are coherent and true, that they work. The second thing is he wants to prove that the Bible is an infallible miracle because I'd one time looked at a news story a few years ago and I pulled five accounts from current media outlets of this same story of how many people were assembled at this protest. All five accounts had widely divergent numbers of people that they thought were at the protest. And this is in an age of electronic recording where they can also check each other's reports. But you go to the Bible, no atomic clocks, no Microsoft Excel, nothing like that. And yet these authors were able to note dates that when you study them carefully are flawless, absolutely flawless. You look at Jesus uh, sojourn in the wilderness and going to the wedding of Cana. You take all the events that John records and you take, when he says the next day, the next day, the third day, and things like that, and you try to fit them in any year you like in juxtaposition with the when the Jewish holidays in the fall occur in that year, meaning when people will and will not travel, and you find there's only one place where it locks together like Legos, and that's in the fall of AD 29. And you suddenly realize this is proof of the honesty of the biblical authors, their probable eyewitness quality, that they, that they were really there because that's how they knew the dates, and God's miraculous preservation of this information in such a way that we can test it and prove it's true. Amen. So I think that, I think that, chronology, and the other thing about chronology, I think, is that when we know where something happened and when we know when something happened, we get a pretty good idea why it happened. Uh, take, for example, Jesus. Um, meeting of the uh, Samaritan woman at the well. So John uses Roman timekeeping. We can tell that by examining his account of the crucifixion compared to the other gospel writers. So he uses the same kind of timekeeping we do. So when he says that Jesus arrived at the well at the sixth hour, he's arriving at sunrise. Well, how in the world do you arise at sunrise traveling from Judea to Samaria unless you traveled through the night? Then you go back a little bit in, in the accounts of Jesus, well, what would he be traveling in the night for? Well, John said he had to travel through Samaria because he wouldn't like to, would have liked to have gone up the Jordan River and not go through hostile Samaria, Samarian territory, but he had to travel through Samaria. Why did he have to do it? 
Well, now you go a little bit further back and you see that Herod Agrippa had just arrested John the Baptist and that the Pharisees had come to realize that Jesus was baptizing, although Jesus wasn't his disciples, where Jesus was baptizing more people than John the Baptist was. Right. So now the Pharisees are saying, well, we thought we got rid of John, but maybe Jesus is a problem. So why did Jesus beat a hasty retreat through the night to Samaria of all places? He didn't want to get arrested. His time hadn't come. And that's why when he got there, John says he was tired and he was hungry. <laughs> and, and so they went into, went into town to get, him, to get him food. Now, when you understand all that, so you hear a lot of people saying, well, the Samaritan woman was an outcast, so she was drawing water at noon when no one else was there. Not according to Scripture. And not only that, here's the other thing. The Pharisees are hunting Jesus down, trying to, trying to, trying to catch him. He, he beats a, a, a hasty retreat. He goes to, to Sikor in Samaria. The Samaritans immediately all recognize him as the Messiah, whereas the, people, the leaders back in Jerusalem, who probably did recognize him as the Messiah, because everyone did right off the bat. No one had many, many doubts about that, even from Philip and Nathaniel right at the beginning. They knew he was. They were hunting him down. The Samaritans knew he was. They welcomed him into their town. And why did he spend two days? Because it was a Friday. It was a Sabbath. So he spent a Samaritan Sabbath with the enemies of the Jews who worshipped him as Christ. Wow. Well, I want to encourage people to dive into the scripture, <clears throat> learn how to study the scripture. And, <laughs> and, and as we jump into talking a little bit more about your book, The Biographies of Jesus' Apostles, I'd love to hear kind of some of the things that you discovered. Uh, you know, something that I... I grew up in the Christian church and I, I learned um, when I went to India on a mission trip, I learned about St. Thomas. I went to Thomas mm -hmm. Mount, the little Mount, the big Mount, um, you know, a pretty amazing experience for me. I've, I've got a book somewhere on, on here that I got from, uh, I think the, the store at one of the Thomas Mounts went up the, the steps and things like that, learned a lot. And um, you know, what are some of the things that you discovered as you studied and then, uh, released the book that some people may not know about the 12 apostles after the book of Acts. Yeah, well, I think that's true. When you mentioned Thomas, there's a lot of very early uh, writing from early church fathers about what happened, what the apostles did after the book of Acts closes, after the, after the Bible closes. We also get a lot of information from Paul's letters and from Peter's letters. They're, the, the, they're, some of them are just very uh, brief clues, but they tie into what the, um, what the early church fathers wrote. So we can't, I would say this, I would not like to totally build doctrine on those things. Right. But what I do say is that when we, when we take the word of people who lived much closer to those events, and let's also remember that in, in, in the first, you know, four to five centuries of, of, of the Christian era, there were tremendous libraries like in Alexandria and Pergamum and stuff like that. They had access to material that we don't have. I read somewhere, I can't cite it, but I read somewhere that considering the immensity of the literature we have from the classical era, we probably only have like three to five percent of what is actually yeah. written in that time. And the other thing to realize is that even if you, even if we lost the entire New Testament, we could reconstruct over 90% of it just from the quotations in the early church fathers. So the early church fathers deserve some respect. Yeah. Uh, you know, whether they always got it right or not, I think they mainly did. But anyway, they give us some great stories about the apostles. For example, Thomas, Thomas going to India and being martyred in India. My wife was, is Armenian, born in Tehran. She was uh, baptized in the church of, uh, of Bartholomew, of the Apostle Bartholomew. 
because the 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 the, the story is from the 300s AD that um, the king of Armenia Agabus wrote not Agabus I forget his name almost Agabus but anyway the king of Armenia wrote a letter to Jesus and said you know your people are so disrespecting you that if it weren't for the Romans I would send an army to uh, to to defeat them and 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 give you victory but since I can't do that because the Romans are too strong would you please come to my country and supposedly Jesus wrote a letter back to Armenia and said, I'm not going to come because I'm, I've come to the children of Israel, but I will send my apostles. And he did. And so uh, just a few years before the Emperor Constantine made Christianity the religion of the Roman Empire, um, Armenia became the first Christian nation. So there, there, are a lot, there are a lot of wonderful stories like, like, like that. But I think also when we get right, right into the body of, of scripture, there's a lot of things that we can learn. You know, for example, when I first became a Christian and I read Jesus went to the shore of Lake Galilee and he saw, you know, Peter and Andrew and James and John and said, you know, I'll make you fishers of men. And they dropped their nets and they followed him, leaving Zebedee standing in the boat, sort of stunned. I always thought, wow, what faith. They just, this stranger came up and just, just invited them to do that. And off they went. And then as I began to look into scripture and look into the early church fathers, I realized, wait a minute, they were probably very related. Uh, you know, James and John were, were almost certainly, and I say almost certainly, I think we can say certainly, the cousins of Jesus. And the reason we can see, see that is because when we look at the three accounts in the Gospels of the women at the cross, and if you put them in a table and say, well, who were these women? Pretty soon you find that Mary, the mother of Jesus, had a sister who was there. And then if you kind of link up the order of the way that they, 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 they list the women, you realize, wait, that sister was, was, was Mary Salome. And she was, oh, from this other gospel, the wife of Zebedee. Well, if Mary Salome, the wife of Zebedee, was the sister of Mary, the um, mother of Jesus, then James and John and Jesus were cousins. And you might say, well, how could Mary and her sister both have the name Mary? Well, that happened in the ancient world. <laughs> people, people a lot of times had, had the same first name. In fact, the Romans named their, uh, their, 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 their sons first, second, third. Like, for example, if you were the second son, you might be called Secundus. If you're the fifth, you'd be called Quintus. You didn't even get a name. You just got a number. So, so, so that definitely happened. But, you know, then you've got it, possibly um, Matthew Levi, as I said, Le Levi, as I said before, and uh, Simon the Zealot and, J and uh, James the Less, possibly they would have been uh, brothers because Matthew... Uh, Matthew and James the Less were both sons of a man called Alphaeus. And the early church fathers say, well, Alphaeus was a guy called Cleopas, who was probably the guy on the Emmaus Road. And Cleopas, the early church fathers write, was the brother of Joseph, the stepfather of Jesus. Wow. So now what you have is you have Jesus bringing in all these young men who are either relatives or close friends. And even if, even if you might say, well, Jim, I don't know, is, that, is all that really provable? I would say, well, it's probable. It's plausible. Is it proven? Perhaps it's not proven, but here's what you can say. In a small place like Galilee, um, where all these people were Jews, and where three times a year, every year, they went in these giant family caravans down to Jerusalem to celebrate the Jewish holidays. It's just about it, it strains uh, credulity beyond the breaking point to think that they didn't know each other from the time they were boys. Like you look at uh, the time Jesus was the boy, in the, you know, the boy Jesus in the temple, right? So when 
when Mary and Joseph tra start traveling back to Galilee, they don't even realize he's not with them. And right. why? They go searching among all the relatives and friends and say, is he with you? Is he with you? So you can imagine all these kids went with the families on these huge picnics three times a year, and they expected Jesus to be, you know, blended in among the folks. And um, you can just imagine, I, I think this is funny. You can imagine, you know, Mary and Joseph going to Peter or Andrew or James or John and going, you've seen Jesus? Have you seen Jesus? And they go, uh, we haven't seen him. He was he was with us. But we, and, you know, you can just see these guys saying, here's this perfect kid, Jesus. He must have been so annoying to grow up with. I mean, you know, he, he just never took a wrong step. So you can just see Peter, Peter and John going, yeah, now he's going to get his. And then they go and find him in the temple. <laughs> debating with the with the authorities and he gains honor and respect from and by the way you know it's interesting there who was the high priest when he was debating with the elders it was Annas in that year that's another chronology thing it was Annas this guy who later goaded his son-in-law Caiaphas to murder Jesus either knew him or knew of him when he was 11 year when he was when he was just a 12 year old yeah and knew knew of his authority and his brilliance. Yeah, well, it's a. I think we're getting a seminary education, guys, in less than thirty minutes, <laughs> right here. I mean, a lot of this stuff, you know. Now I've gone through and just found just golden nuggets of, of biblical truth, you know, from the pages of the scripture, you know. Um, and I, I just want to encourage people, you know, dive into the scripture, uh, dive into the the Word of God. James has a passion for this, for the chronology, the biblical exposition, and he's written 25 books, 25 books uh, for, for as resources, as study guides and things like that. So, uh, James, this this has been awesome. I mean, love to talk more about this, but um, what is one key takeaway that you want people to get about your book, the biographies of the uh, Jesus apostles? Well, if you go to the book, you're going to get the story of every single apostle and how they fit not only into Jesus' ministry, but into the creation of the Christian world. And the other thing is at the back of the book, I have a, a proposed chronology of the entire life of Jesus and of all the apostles. There's one thing I'd like to try to sneak in before we go, and that is this. People always say that people always say, well, the Bible is just a bunch of orally transmitted uh, stories that took place long after the event. Well, here's the thing. If you look at the number of days, I've got it written over here, the number of days of Jesus' ministry, um, he ministered for uh, 1,350 days, which is 44 consecutive months. That's almost four years. But out of those days, for 770 days of that, uh, of that time, Jesus and the apostles disappeared from the pages of Scripture. What did they do? Well, what they probably did is they probably rehearsed everything Jesus wanted them to know. And what did they do with that? Jesus called the apostles scribes in the kingdoms of heaven. Now, if you were there with Jesus and he called you a scribe and you were sitting there at the Sermon on the Mount, wouldn't you look at each other and say, are you getting any of this down? You'd probably take notes. But guess who wasn't there? Matthew, the only apostle who recorded the entire Sermon on the Mount, because the Sermon in Luke actually occurred at a different time in a different place to different people. It's a Sermon on the Plain. Well, who told that to Matthew? Could have been Jesus, could have been the Holy Spirit, or could have been the other apostles who willingly gave Matthew their sermon notes to be able to create his gospel. So I believe that is very probable, and we shouldn't look 
for an explanation that the gospel was written hundreds of years afterwards by by people pretending to be the apostles. There's just no call for that. Wow. Okay. I was I was thinking just as you're talking, I was about to go. Shh. <laughs> this is amazing. So thank you. Mind blown. Okay, James. Would you pray for our, our viewers, our listeners right now to dive deep in the word of God, have a deep relationship with the Holy Spirit, draw near to Jesus? Sure. Lord, thank you so much for being together with us. I always like to remind myself and others that when two or more gather in your name, you have the time, you have the heart, you have the love, you have the mind to be here with us in our midst. And I thank you for that. I pray, Lord, that um, everyone uh, we're praying together with will become not only disciples of Christ, but disciple makers of Christ, because that's what these wonderful men, these ambassadors in chains, that's what they did when they fulfilled the Great Commission. They not only went out and brought the word, but they spread seeds and and, and look what they did. Look how they changed the world. So I pray, Lord, that our lives may be changed better by your Holy Spirit, that you may inspire us and uh, guide us to be all that you want us to be, to say all the things that you want us to say, to keep us away from the things you don't want us to do, and to help us to be, you know, pioneers and champions for the kingdom of Christ. In Jesus' name. Amen. James, what is the best way for people to get a hold of you for more information and also to get a copy of your book, Biographies of Jesus Apostles? Well, they can reach me at my web website, thebiblehistoryguy.com. And it's got contact information. It's got my email. You can also get me at jim at thebiblehistoryguy.com. And I have a radio program every week, so you can go and listen to the recordings of those on the website. Wow. And you can also ask just questions on the website. And I answer them all the time. People send me queries. So you're releasing books, you got a radio program, and you're working on your PhD. How do you get it all done? Uh, well, I'm not bored. <laughs> absolutely not. Do you sleep? Not much. Not much. That's true. I never have all my life. I only do, only do about four hours a night. Well, James, it is an honor and a pleasure. I want to encourage everybody to check out the BibleHistoryGuy.com. And looking back, I, I said that this is the free download, Three Secrets to Unlocking the Book of Revelation that people could jump into. But I, because we're talking about the scripture and this was like seminary, you know, crammed into 30 minutes of just like a class or something crammed into 30 minutes. I should have encouraged people to check out my Spirit Empowered Bible Study Journal that equips you, asks five, six different things on how to interpret a scripture in relationship with the Holy Spirit. So people could check that out on firebornministries.com. But also, guys, share share this episode anywhere and everywhere you listen to podcasts. Share it with your friends, your family. And, um, yeah, give us a five-star rating review. It helps us reach more people. It helps break the algorithm so that other people can hear this incredible conversation that we had with James right here on Adventures in the Spirit. Thank you so much for listening to Adventures in the Spirit with Jared Lasky, a podcast that activates you to live the supernatural life. Subscribe to this podcast on your favorite podcast platform and share it with your friends. Leave a five-star rate and review, which helps us reach more people with the love and power of the Holy Spirit and partner with us at firebornministries.com. And may you live your best spirit-empowered life and have your own adventures in the Holy Spirit. For over 10 years, Grammarly has been powered by AI technology that you trust and rely on by helping you across all the places where you write the most. With one click, you can easily brainstorm, rewrite, and reply quickly with suggestions based on your context and goals. Accelerate productivity for you and your teams. More than 30 million people rely on Grammarly to help them with their writing today. Applying to new jobs? 
With Grammarly by your side, you can apply to your dream job with confidence by tailoring your cover letter and revising your resume in seconds. A big presentation coming up? Let Grammarly create a personalized outline to get you organized so you can transform your ideas into a compelling presentation. For your next vacation, it can help you create a whole itinerary. Grammarly is here to assist you at every step of your writing so you can show up with confidence. You'll be amazed at what you can do. Go to Grammarly.com slash podcast to download for free. That's G-R-A-M-M-A-R-L-Y dot com slash podcast.